Hello, and welcome to the History of Islam podcast, episode 1, Pre-Islamic Arabia. Hello, and welcome back. Well, I guess a more appropriate and topical greeting would be the greeting of Islam. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And that roughly translates to peace to you and may the mercy and blessings of God be upon you. Usually this greeting is cut short to just Assalamu alaikum, peace to you, with the simple reply being wa alaikum salam, peace to you too. And a nice bit of trivia here, this is actually where the hip hop slash African American greeting uh, originates from, that you often hear on the hip hop records, particularly from um, the older acts such as Nas and the Wu-Tang Clan from the so-called golden age of hip-hop. But these fr- these phrases are still widely used today. For example, peace and peace out. We hear them a lot today. And as with a lot of African-American culture, these phrases became much more widespread and escaped the hip-hop community. And you hear a lot of people signing off with peace and peace out and so on. Anyway, that's just a bit of trivia for you guys. But let us get started with today's episode. In 651 AD, Yazdegerd III, the last Sassanid emperor, was killed by a simple miller who failed to recognize his overlord, recognizing only the value of the clothes and the jewels that he wore. We're going to be looking at the origins of the movement that led to his death and ended the Sassanid dynasty. The 19th century Scottish writer Thomas Carlyle popularized what is now known as the Great Man Theory, a theory that I'm personally quite fond of and to an extent agree with. And his ideas can be summarized by the quote, The history of the world is but the biography of great men. And the definition of greatness is something that we can't quite put our finger on. I mean, if you go to the Oxford English Dictionary, you'll find that it simply defines it as the quality of being great. But what exactly is being great? And this has led to people debating over what exactly greatness is and what makes one worthy of being considered and recognized as great. And as with anything that's subjective, it's impossible to create a formulaic method that everyone agrees with. And for me personally, greatness is ultimately attained through the impact and the influence that an individual makes on this planet in the short lifespan that we as humans have been bestowed with. If you pause for a moment, clear your mind and try to imagine what the world would be like if Alexander the Great's army hadn't refused to continue marching east, or What if Alexander had lived longer? Another good example is Julius Caesar. What if Julius Caesar had taken his wife's advice and not gone to the Senate? What if the Declaration of Independence had never been signed by the Founding Fathers of America? What if Napoleon had been victorious against the Russians in 1812? And for this reason, alternative histories utterly fascinate me. I can spend ages literally just daydreaming about how the world would look today if one event was changed just slightly or maybe had just simply never happened or how the removal of just one life from the face of this earth could change it completely and in the history of Islam we have just that the removal of one life from the face of this earth would have changed it completely what if Muhammad was never born what if Islam never existed now this is a difficult task for even the most creative minds to try and imagine what the planet today would look like if those events haven't happened. And few events in history have transformed the face of this earth as rapidly and as decisively as Islam and the changes that it brought with it. 
and it forms one of those rare turning points in history that impact the general course of the world so deeply that a world without Islam is almost unfathomable and for me this is why the history of Islam is worth studying understanding and learning about because anything that has influenced our planet and basically our lives today to that extent is surely worth understanding anyway the history of Islam can be presented as how the life of one man of humble origins has shaped the world that we live in today and he is the Arab prophet Muhammad every day millions and millions of people around the globe praise his name whenever he is mentioned whether it be in prayer or in general conversation Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam this is usually translated to Muhammad peace be upon him but in reality it means more than that it's really more of a personal plea to God himself to honor bless and grant him peace in this podcast we will be beginning with the man that taught the religion of Islam and looking at what exactly it was that he did and what exactly it was that he achieved for him to be held in such a high esteem by millions of people on this planet today but before we can do that we must make an important and vital detour and look at the world he was born into and the environment that shaped him the people of arabia were classified into two branches the first branch is the qahtani arabs who resided mainly in the south of the arabian peninsula and they were considered the original pure arabs and they were called qahtani as they were descendants of a man called qahtan and the second branch is the adnani arabs who were basically everyone else and they were descendants of a man called adnan and considered to be the progeny of abraham through his son ishmael a people are a mirror of the land that they dwell in so before our story can begin we must first set the scene and look at the geography of the arabian peninsula to truly understand and appreciate the people of arabia their society their culture we must understand the nature of the land that they lived in and how unforgiving it is now the reason i've mentioned the separation between the qahtani and the adnani arabs is because of the north south divide which is going to be a good basis for the rest of this podcast okay now that we've established that the arabs called their land jazirat al-arab and that means the island of the arabs it was enveloped on all sides and it still is i shouldn't have i shouldn't really say it was it is enveloped on all sides by water and sand the persian gulf on the east the indian ocean to the south the red sea on the west and the syrian desert just as formidable a natural boundary to the north mountains snake down the west of the peninsula tracing out the coastline until they get to the southwest of arabia where they meet the mountains of the south and form the peak of arabia as you move east towards the persian gulf the land tends to flatten out into the sandy deserts that only the bravest dare to venture into the largest of these is arab al-khali that's what they called it the empty quarter and that just goes to show you how desolate it was now let's start with the south of arabia the south of arabia was very different from the majority of arabian lands the south especially the southwestern district is characterized by its fertility and mountain country and that is going to be very strange to your ears because you're probably used to hearing of arabia as being just deserts but arabia was a land that had no permanent rivers and yemen was no exception 
However, what it did get was a predictable rainfall. Now, don't don't get it confused. If a European was to go to Yemen, it will still seem as arid as the rest of Arabia because the rain that it did get was very short. Okay, but the difference was it was quite predictable because it was monsoon rains coming from the Indian Ocean. But even this rainfall had its problems. We've already said that it was very short, but it was also violent. And we have an account from a 19th century American missionary traveling through the highlands of the south. And he tells us his experience with this rainfall. Suddenly, the sky was black. Rain fell in torrents, so we found it hopeless to attempt to urge the slow camels on. There was no shelter in sight, so we crouched under a small tree. The rain turned to hail large stones that frightened the camels so much that they stampeded. When the storm ceased, our donkey man came with looks of horror on his face to tell us that his poor beast had fallen down the slope and was being swept away by the torrent. What was a dry riverbed half an hour ago was now a rushing rapids." End quote. Now methods had to be devised by the Arabs for the effective catchment, distribution and storage of the most precious resource to man. And they exploited this destructive force of nature to their benefit through the ingenious use of the land around them, literally reshaping it. And they did this mainly in four ways. The first way they did this was through terrace farming. And terracing is the conversion of mountain sides and valley slopes into stone shelves, a sort of staircase of life, if you like. And what it achieved was, A, it broke the pace of the flood water, which straight away takes away a vital aspect of its destructive force, okay, its speed. And this caused the water to cascade gently down the step-like shelves cut into the mountainside. And B, another thing that slowing down the water achieved was that it allowed the water to be absorbed by the soil. Yep, it allowed the water to be absorbed by the soil. So part of the water would continue to flow down the steps and part of it would sink into the ground at each shelf. And this would result in a more healthy and fertile earth as the all-important topsoil, which contains all the minerals and nutrients that were needed by plants they were not being swept away by the water. And this is one thing that violent rains do. They sweep away the topsoil and make the soil basically useless. So in the end, because of the terraces and the steps, we now have a moist soil that wasn't too saturated or too dry. The second method that they did this was through canals. And canals were cut to smooth out flooding irregularities and to circulate the water evenly around fields and it allowed the water to be conveyed beyond the small area that the rainfall was concentrated in and it allowed it to be taken beyond the reach of floods and this means that a wider area of land could benefit from these brief concentrated and otherwise devastating rains. The third way they did this was through dams and dams were very helpful in the Yemen. One way that the flow of water can be redirected is through small tiny dams about knee or waist height and what these did they were acting as sort of deflectors for the flow of water and these dams were made of small loose stones or compacted earth and they would be placed at an angle to the banks of a valley to deflect and divert some of the flood water to plots of land they would also use 
big dams and these dams were were massive they will be built across valleys 15 meters high and they will block the valley off completely and this served to a calm down the turbulence of the water and b it would give you a reservoir of water and this reservoir can obviously be used in times of need where you need the water and you have nowhere to get it and sometimes additional canals would be cut uh, into the reservoir so that when the water behind the dam reached a desired level it would be led off by the canals to the awaiting fields and the largest most impressive and famous of these dams was the Me'rib Dam and this was at the de facto capital for most of the southern Arabian kingdoms and the ruins of this dam still exist today and the modern Me'rib Dam is built pretty close to the old ruins and the original Me'rib Dam was built around 750 BC now that shows you that these guys were around for a long time they, they're not they're not a new innovation 750 BC 750 years before Christ now that's a long time ago that's almost 3,000 years from today and the cultivated area that it watered the cultivated area that the Metrib Dam watered was more than 24,000 acres now this is a great feat of architecture and engineering for an ancient people and I'm surprised that this is not more well known because it actually is very impressive and what the Metrib Dam ultimately achieved was a breathtaking Garden of Eden in the middle of the desert where astonishingly this earth that would have been basically a wasteland is producing everything that the heart could desire wheat, barley, pulses, vegetables, vines, fruits and much much more but perhaps the most important resource cultivated in Yemen were the aromatics and they were very famous for this in the ancient world Arabia Felix's most famous export, particularly frankincense and myrrh. These were the premier luxuries of their time. And just to give you an idea of their value in the societies of that period, ancient societies, well, you just have to look at the story of the three wise men who visited Jesus Christ after his birth. What did they bring him? They brought him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that just shows you the true and great value of these two things that were mainly cultivated in the Yemen. Okay, so the fourth way that the Southern Arabians managed to control these violent rainfalls was through the use of wells. Artificial wells were dug and cisterns were carved out by hollowing out massive rocks. And when you hollowed out these massive rocks, you basically have a massive vessel where you can store the water. And these wells were mainly for household consumption, not for farming. But in dry years, they would be used to help out for irrigation. And by the way, what I mean by artificial wells is natural wells are shafts that grant access to naturally occurring groundwater, naturally occurring aquifers. Whereas artificial wells collect and store water that's diverted by man. And even today, the farmers of the Yemen still work one of the oldest terrace farming systems in the world dating back to the third millennium BC these innovations are what painted the mountains of the Yemen green turning an arid land lush and fertile and this is what allowed this region to step up beyond the rest of Arabia 
and the Greeks distinguished the south as Arabia Felix, which means happy Arabia, whereas the rest of Arabia was Arabia Deserta, deserted Arabia, abandoned Arabia, worthless Arabia, a land of no value. If you go to the blog and look at the episode guide, you'll find that I have included a really useful map that shows you where the cultivated land in Arabia is. And what you'll see is that it is completely barren, except for a few lines and a few dots here and there. As we mentioned before, the lines on the map are mainly the mountain slash highland areas in the south, and also some coastal strips. But those dots, however, are the true lifeline for Arabia proper, because without them, life in Arabia would be practically impossible. And they represent man's utilization of the underground reservoirs of water through wells and oases. And this shows you the adaptability of man. You know, place him in a barren wasteland and he will not just survive, he will thrive. The rest of Arabia, Arabia Deserta, was, to put it simply, arid. And there are three types of terrain in an arid region. The first one we have already mentioned, and that is where rain in a given spot is predictable enough to warrant planting crops, which, however, are always in danger of failing. If if the rain fails and doesn't arrive at the time that it's expected, then they would fail. And this was the case in the Yemen, as we said, with the seasonal monsoon rains. The second type of terrain is where water is available in concentrated amounts from some source other than local rain, such as aquifers that can be tapped by wells and employed to irrigate fields. And this is basically what we now call an oasis. And these oases may be large enough to include many villages or even a city or two. But in some cases, these oases can be really small because the source of water that is available there isn't plentiful enough to be used in wide-scale agriculture. And finally, there is areas in the arid region where there is enough scattered rainwater to produce sporadic vegetation for grazing. And this is vegetation that only animals can eat. And humans can't graze on, uh, on shrubs the same way a sheep or a goat or a camel can. And in places like this, although you have this desert shrubbery and vegetation growing, settled agriculture in any one spot is impossible. And this was the case for the vast majority of Arabia. And what this means is that it was impossible to settle permanently in the majority of the land in Arabia. Mind you, Arabia is pretty big. It's about a third the size of the United States of America. So if you can't produce anything on a permanent basis in this land, other than sporadic vegetation that is going to appear naturally, the desert shrubs here and there are not something that humans can consume. However, animals can. And this is where the nomads come in. The nomads of Arabia were pastoral nomads, and a pastoral nomad is a nomad whose primary source of sustenance is from his animals. And this means that a nomad's animals are unquestionably the most important things in his life. Okay, their well-being is directly proportional to his well-being. Their survival means his survival, and if they perish, he will also The Bedouins have to travel long distances in search of food and drink for their animals, following migratory routes that are determined by the availability of water and pasture. 
almost the same way certain birds have their seasonal migratory routes at certain times of the year. A life truly in sync with nature. And no wonder why the more civilized peoples, like the Greeks, considered them wild barbarians. However, in reality, the Bedouins were much more dynamic than this. And due to the nature of the way that the Bedouins lived their lives out in the wild deserts, they had a wealth of tangible and intangible assets that sedentary, aka settled people, needed. One example of the tangible assets that nomads had that settled people needed were their animals. The animals raised by Bedouins were exploited not just for their ultimate consumption as meat, but as you can imagine for a whole range of secondary products such as milk, wool, hair, hide, labour, transport and so on. And we're going to come across a lot of these later on and speak about them in a little bit more detail. But for now, let me give you an example of intangible assets that the Bedouins had. And these were their skills. And they were also very many and very important. And the obvious one would be their skills fighters. But one less obvious one is their knowledge of the land as trackers and as guides. And this is especially, especially vital in a place like Arabia, where one wrong turn means almost certain death. And the importance of this is illustrated by the fact that even the settled Arabs, who were born and bred on the land, would enlist the help of their nomad brethren when it came to navigating. But perhaps the best demonstration of the power and the significance of this skill is the story of the Roman expedition to Arabia Felix. To tell this tale, we must enter the thought vessel and go further back to the days of Alexander the Great. Long before the Empire of Rome came to dominate the Mediterranean and take its place as the leader of the Hellenistic world, a young man named Alexander had marched his armies throughout the known world, forming the Hellenistic civilization, which under the influence of Roman administration would become the basis and foundation of modern European life. Alexander's world-altering stride was brought to a halt and checked in the north of India, not by his enemies, but by his own men who after years of campaigning in strange lands had met their limits and longed to see their parents, their wives and children, their homeland. However, Alexander's nature could not allow him to rest. After all he had achieved, he was not yet satisfied. His adventures were not over, and if his men didn't want to follow him unconditionally towards glory, he'll find others who will, who will follow him to the end of the world. Let them go home if they want. He will build an army of Asiatics, trained under the Macedonian discipline. And after the hard track westward towards home, Alexander set out to do that very thing. He entered the city of Babylon in 323 BC, which he had made his de facto capital. And there he received delegations and ambassadors from every people in the known world, except the Arabs. This was the final nail in the coffin for Alexander. He had his casus belli. He had his reason to go to war. Alexander quickly formulated his plans for his new army and the conquest of Arabia Felix. Arabia Felix was to the Greeks a country at the ends of the earth. The same way Britain for the Romans was an island cloudy and mysterious at the end of the world. Arabia Felix in ancient times was a land of unimaginable wealth and fertility, 
where perfumes, which in the real world would cost a fortune, filled the earth and simply blew on the breezes, where cinnamon was used as firewood, a land of pure luxury. Of course, this wasn't 100% true, but that's what the Greeks imagined, because for them, all their luxuries and all their most expensive products, such as frankincense and myrrh and spices from India, came either through this land or were cultivated in the land of Arabia Felix. By the end of May 323 BC, the preparations for the Arabian campaign were in full swing, so this wasn't just a pipe dream. Alexandra was true to his word, and he would be commencing. A fort was built in southern Mesopotamia on the border to Arabia, and a fleet had been transported in pieces from the Mediterranean to Babylon, where naval battles were simulated on the Euphrates-Tigris river system, with winners receiving prizes. Finally, a predominantly Asiatic army of 50,000 men who would follow Alexander wherever he went were gathered. And in each company there were 12 Persians and 4 Macedonians, one of whom was in command of the company. This time, Alexander was ready and no man could stop him. On the morning of June 2nd, the king fell sick and less than two weeks later, he breathed his last breath and the great conqueror was no more. His empire fell into chaos and fragmented, leaving his plans incomplete and unfulfilled. Fast forward about 300 years, and after Octavian, Julius Caesar's Aaron nephew, had achieved victory at Actium in 31 BC, Octavian pursued his defeated rivals Antony and Cleopatra to Alexandria in Egypt and after quickly capturing the city, he soon had the opportunity to view the sites of Alexander the Great's city. One of the few places he is known to have visited during his residence there is the tomb of the great conqueror, Alexander the Great. Rome's future emperor is said to have reverently placed a golden crown on the embalmed body laid out in front of him, and then scattered flowers on it. When Octavian was asked if he would also like to see the tombs of the Ptolemies, the Greco-Macedonian dynasty that had ruled over Egypt since the death of Alexander, he abruptly dismissed the suggestion, saying that he wanted to see a king, not a row of corpses. In 27 BC, four years after his visit to Alexander's tomb, Octavian was now Augustus, the first citizen of Rome and the most powerful man on the planet. Augustus not only influenced by the wishes and legacy of Alexander, but also by the reports that the people of Arabia Felix were very wealthy indeed. And as you've probably figured out by now, Augustus ordered Lucius Elius Gallus, the governor of Egypt, to prepare an expedition against Arabia Felix. Gallus had three legions at his disposal. He left one in Egypt and took the remaining two legions and gathered auxiliary forces from the nearby allies of Rome. One of these allies of Rome were the Nabataeans. The Nabataeans were actually Arabs, and they lived in the very north of Arabia, with their famous capital at Petra. From them, Gallus received a man named Silius, who was to guide him on his march. However, even he was unable to provide him with a safe route through Arabia. 
As they trudged painfully over the waterless wastes of Arabia, the Romans found themselves in a place that had no roads, a region destitute of everything, a landscape that made it seem like they were marching in circles. The expedition was a catastrophe. Thousands of soldiers perished in misery from thirst and pestilence, and only a fragment of the men who initially set out returned. No military or other results were achieved. I wonder what would have happened if the Romans had a knowledgeable guide. Would they have established themselves in Arabia for good? How would that have influenced the world later on? Maybe, as some people have pointed out, maybe they did have a good guide. Strabo, a geographer at the time and a personal friend of Gallus, accused Silius the Nabataean of purposely misleading the expedition to its demise. The Nabataeans were middlemen in the trade between Arabia Felix and the Romans, so that is quite a plausible argument, but Strabo, who champions this argument, was a personal friend of Gallus, so maybe he's just trying to cover up for his friend being a useless general. Anyway, that is just speculation. Well, that brings this episode to a close. Next episode, we'll continue looking at the life of the nomadic Arabs before Islam and their interactions with settled people, which will take us nicely to the oasis of Mecca and its inhabitants, the Quraysh. Who were they? Thank you for listening. This episode will have some footnotes, so if you want to carry on listening to those, then please do. Otherwise, I'll see you next Thursday. Goodbye. You are now listening to the footnotes slash appendix segment. I should really give this segment an actual name. So if you have any suggestions, head over to the blog at historyofislampodcast.blogspot.com and send me them via the contact page. Now, before I go any further, I want to remind you to check out the episode guide for this episode where I have included a bunch of YouTube videos where I go over the geography of the regions in Arabia in a bit more detail. Okay, so I also want to mention that if you're sending me messages, if you want to remain anonymous, so you don't want me to mention your name if I say your message in the podcast, if you want to remain anonymous, then write anonymous in place of your email on the contact form submission page. However, this means that I won't be able to reply to you. So if you want me to be able to reply to you and also remain anonymous if I mention the message in the podcast, then please mention so in the first line of your message. Again, I urge all of you to go and see the episode guide, especially, especially for this episode. It will include, amongst other things, a bunch of videos looking at the geography of Arabia more closely and separating Arabia into 
I think about five regions so that when I mention these regions in future episodes you won't be lost instead you have an image of the map of Arabia in your mind with approximately where that region is and that will really really help you in the future and it's much clearer when you can actually see it rather than have to imagine it just from my vocal descriptions. I want to thank all of you who sent me messages and really the more the merrier because by interacting with you I feel as if I'm actually creating and putting my time towards something worthwhile and useful and this podcast requires a significant effort and is really time consuming so I really will appreciate it if more of you send me more messages and again really want to thank you if you already have uh, thanks a lot a few more announcements firstly The podcast has been approved for iTunes, so you can now find it there. And I've added all the relevant links to the blog, historyofislampodcast.blogspot.com. Secondly, I have had a few queries from people looking to donate, surprisingly so. So if you want to go ahead and do that, the option has actually been made available on the blog. Thirdly, if you want to directly download an episode, then an alternative download-only link to the file will be available in the corresponding episode guide. Thirdly... In the beginning of this episode, I talked about the origin of using the word peace as a greeting in hip-hop. If you're interested in reading a bit more about basically Islam's influence on hip-hop and the African-American community, particularly the 5%er sect, I recommend, re- <coughs> Sorry, I recommend reading the book The 5%ers, Islam, Hip-Hop and the Gods of New York by Michael Muhammad Knight. I'll put a little uh, image of the book's cover on the episode guide. And finally, a few people have asked me to introduce myself personally um, after the introduction page. A lot of people said that was lacking from the introduction episode. And this is something I've neglected, as you already know. I'm a big fan of the History of Rome podcast, and that is what I'm almost using as a template to guide me through the course of this podcast until I can find my own personal style. And because Mike Duncan never really introduced himself on a personal level in his podcast until the much, much later Q&A episodes, which are about 100 episodes in, um, I didn't feel the need to do so myself. But just to answer the pleas of people, my name is Elias Belhadad, and I live in the UK, and as cliche as it may sound, I have always liked history. And from as soon as I can read, books with a historical theme have accounted for the majority of my library. Even my favourite fictional novel is historical fiction. Now, when it comes to actual academic qualifications, higher education qualifications, and the field of history, I actually don't have any. But this neglects the fact that I'm an undergraduate working my way towards a degree in history, and it is an ambition of mine to venture further into higher education in the field of history. Um, However, I do have experience in teaching history to children, though, so... Other than that, like most podcast producers, I am by the definition of the word an amateur. Now, I hope that doesn't put anyone off as I feel my strong point is mainly the quality of my research and the extra resources I provide such as the YouTube videos, the episode guides and other content on the blog. And my main concern is weaving the facts into an entertaining narrative that people can follow. And from looking at reviews and people's thoughts on other popular feedback i found that 
The only podcaster who people consider entertaining is Dan Carlin, really, and his style of following interesting tangents. Personally, I don't really like that style that much because my main concern as a listener is engaging in a chilled out learning experience. So long tangents only serve to throw me off the main narrative and model my understanding. And in in this episode with the expedition slash Alexander tangent, I felt like I went down the rabbit hole for too long. I don't know if you feel the same way, so I'll be interested to know your opinion so that I know whether I carry on the thought vessel segment uh, in the same fashion or to avoid that sort of thing entirely and again this podcast is intended to be of an academic quality it's really extensively researched and a lot of time goes into research so i don't want the current lack of actual formal academic qualifications to put anyone off because i'm in the process of getting those and this podcast is actually a supplement to that process it's helping me on the road to getting a degree and hopefully a PhD in the future. Anyway, that's all for now. I'm quite liking this footnotes concept. It allows me to almost ramble aimlessly without harming the quality of the podcast. So if you have any name suggestions for this segment, then hit me up on historyofislampodcast.blogspot.com and use the contact page. Not the comment section i might disable that completely use the contact page and thanks again for listening look forward to hearing from you please bombard me with those messages and uh i'll see you next thursday peace out